Don't worry about the snow because it's going to be melted by the time I'm done. Uh, <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Uh, the Altums. Uh, the Altums are going to, they, they, they've wanted to host the college students on a Tuesday meal, so that's going to be uh, Tuesday, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure you have directions sent to you uh, for their house. It's a little bit of a trick to get to their house, maybe, but it's well worth it when you get there, so, uh, so remember that. But also, lads to leaders, unless it gets really weird with the weather, um, you will still have the practice at 415. This is for song leading and speaking. Is that right, Ryan? Okay, so those, those lads of leaders, folks, that's, you need that practice today. Uh, a reminder, uh, this is kind of something that we've, um, I've just kind of forgot to, to say anything, but Freed Hardeman's chorus is coming in next weekend. We are housing 40 students, so if you're a person who likes to have some students at your house, we'll get the gender breakdown a little later this weekend, uh, this week, but is that me? Testing, testing, that's it, okay. I don't understand this stuff. Anyway, so uh, we'll have that breakdown, but if you can house them, that would be great. We'll be coming in Saturday. And then next Sunday, regular early service, regular service like we do here, uh, and then we'll have potluck. So potluck team number one is in charge of that one. Your names are in the bulletin, so be here for that. The meat will be provided. We just need to bring the side dishes and desserts, and we're going to set this up perfectly. We're going to have four lines, and it'll take no time at all. But right after, as, as everybody's finishing that, we're going to come in here and do a little singing. The chorus is going to, uh, the chorale is going to make a presentation at 1 o'clock, and then that's it for the day. So it's, it sounds terrible, but church eat chorale. Church eat chorale. See, that sounds a little weird, but the whole thing is that we're not going to have church that night. So uh, that's next weekend. You can look forward to that, and, and we always enjoy having the chorus with us. I think that is everything. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. You know how we communicate and the way that we uh, convey something within us that's hard to understand is by comparison. We compare something that maybe we can't explain or we can't understand by bringing alongside something that we do. It's called comparison. And that's what a, that's what a parable is. But I'm going to give you an example like from Scripture. Let's say a man in love with his wife thinks she's the most beautiful thing. I think Mark and Lisa would be a good example of this. They just think they're just, they're just totally enamored with one another. And let's say they want to convey something from their heart to the other that just the regular words don't work. So poetry or something in comparison might work. So Song of Solomon tries this. The woman... Uh, the woman's beautiful, and, and, and he's looking at her, and he says, Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Mark says that to Lisa because her hair just flows, right? You look at a, you look at a flock of sheep, and I'm looking at that, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm not sure that's flattering or not. But in their experience, their background, that made sense. That's how you, you 
my feelings are so strong, I've got to compare it to something that we both understand. Or he says, uh, your teeth are, are like a flock of uh, shorn ewes that have come up from the cleaning, the washing, all of which bear their twins, and not one of them has lost its young. You know what he's saying? You have all your teeth. <laughs> so this was not an Arkansas couple. This was, no. He wants just beautiful smile, full of teeth, and he says it with words that convey something. Now she looks at him and says something, behold, he comes leaping. This is Kim talking to Paul. Leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or young stag. Now that, that sounds a little better to me than, than you have all your teeth. But it's, you're conveying something in the background of her and the background of him, and there's a connection, and by comparison, you communicate. That's how we do this. Clear understanding in the background helps you to have this. We think about this in English. Those of you thought you'd never use English at all this way, but listen, this is the, your chance to be able to show your wisdom. When you're making a comparison between two things and you use the word like or as, it is called a... Wow, see, college people were strong on that one. They just had English class. You, you, and some of you might, I'll never use this stuff. Yeah, you will in a sermon sometime. Now, if you don't use like or as, it's called... Metaphor, man, smart church, smart church. And so that's what a parable is. A parable is a simile and a metaphor together. And it compares something maybe we can't grasp by comparing it to something that we can. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, uh, give you an interpretation of the parable that we're talking about today in just a minute, but here is the cipher for it. Uh, this is... What Paul, Jesus later on says, he says, uh, I want you to know uh, the one who sows good seed is Jesus. I want you to know the field is not the church, the field is the world. So when you hear that in the parable, you've got to know what it is. Uh, the good seed is not the word of God this time. That's what it often is, but it's not this time. It's, it's citizens of the kingdom of God. And the weeds are the citizens of the kingdom of evil. I want you to get that very carefully. And the enemy that shows up is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. And he says, here's your cipher later on. But Jesus is using a parable because he wants to communicate something that would be hard to get without using the story. So I want you to look at the beginning of the parable. It says, verse 24, he put another parable before them. This is a word that says, when I, when I set a meal before you and said, okay, guys, you dig in and eat, I set the meal out there, but what you get is up to you. You have a pot like you have all this, meal, this food set up, but what you actually get is up to you. The parable is, I'm going to set before you what I mean to say, but whether you get it or not is largely up to you. That's hard to do sometimes. So using this cipher, let me tell you the parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared, by the way, you care about this because you are the kingdom you're in the kingdom. You need to know this. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to when Jesus sowed his kingdom of God's citizens into the world. While his workers were sleeping, the devil came and sowed his kingdom of evil citizens among the kingdom of God's citizens, and he went away. So when the plants came up and bore kingdom of God's citizens, the kingdom of evil citizens appeared as well. 
And the servants of the Son of Man came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow kingdom of God citizens into the world? How then does the world have so many kingdom of evil citizens in it? Where did they come from? And he said to them, The devil has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the kingdom of evil citizens, you root up kingdom of God citizens along with them. Let them both grow together until the end of the age, and at the end of time I will tell the angels, gather the kingdom of evil citizens first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the kingdom of God citizens into my barn. There's your parable. He sets it before them and says, now devour. What in the world was he saying? You need to care about this because you're kingdom of God people. And Jesus speaks this parable to convey something. The question is, what is he saying? Now right before this, there was this incident where Jesus cast this demon out of a man. And Jesus says, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I cast this demon out. And what it means is that the kingdom of God has come to the earth in the presence of Jesus. The kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of evil. That's what's happening. invading the world that God created, but Satan has taken over. The kingdom of God has come. I've gone into the strong man's house. You remember this? I've gone into the strong man's house and I've bound him. The strong man is Satan. I have limited Satan and I brought the kingdom of God into the world. Now, if this is true, what I'm expecting, and I'm certain what his hearers would expect, is if this is the kingdom, if you've come and you brought the kingdom of God into the world, why aren't we seeing it more? Why isn't it invading and overtaking the world? And why isn't evil being eradicated? And why isn't sickness being eliminated? And why isn't death completely evaporated? Why, hasn't things, why haven't things turned out? Why is evil so prevalent still? If the kingdom of God, you know who the kingdom of, you know who God is, right? God, the all-knowing and all-powerful one? There's this scene that everybody talks about, Armageddon in the book of Revelation. What's interesting is all the powers of evil line up. They join together forces, and they line up to fight God in the last great battle. What happens? Nothing. All the forces of evil can't hold back God one millisecond. They can't line up and battle him. He is more powerful than all of them combined in multitudes. Right? And there is no battle. There is no fight. There is nobody who can fight God. If we are in the kingdom of God, church, why do we look so small? If the kingdom of God is in the world, why is the evening news so full of evil? That's what the people want to know. If this kingdom of God is here, why is this... You know who God is? The blessed and only ruler. Blessed and only ruler, king of kings, lord of lords, who alone, alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and dominion forever. We are in the kingdom of the lord of lords and the king of kings, but why does it not look like it when I look on the world? It's 
It's an inevitable question. If we go out and we say to people, you want to be part of the kingdom of God? Come into the church. And I just got to tell you, if I, I'm sitting there going, you're saying all this about God. We're, we're praying to him as the one and only ruler. That's what, that's what he said in the Lord's Supper. It's beautiful. The one and only king, and he's Lord of lords, and he has all power and all sovereignty and all dominion. It sure doesn't look like it, church, does it? It sure doesn't look like it. We barely escape Haiti. This parable is helping us. It needs to be understood because, guys, we're going to live in this world and we're going to be baffled. We're going to live our lives by a truth that we proclaim every Sunday, but through the week we're going to be baffled. How can that truth be true given what I see? This makes no sense to me. This parable is helpful and it's crucial and you need to have it in your back pocket and you need to know what it means. This parable explains God made the world. We know that, right? I have an amen from earlier. God made the world. I don't need to prove this, but I'm going to anyway because the sun, snow's falling and I want it to melt. I can prove it. God created the heavens and the earth just by speaking it into existence. That's Genesis 1. And I don't care what the world does with it. Genesis 1 is still the truth. It's still how we got here. And God, our God, is the one behind it all. That's always going to be true. I don't care what any scientific journal says. One. Number two is, if I didn't have it, I've still got Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everyone in it. The Lord made it. He made all that there is. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. And then I could, if you want to just evaporate the Old Testament and come up with a New Testament, let's go to the Sermon of Paul in Acts chapter 17. He's standing before a group of people who didn't go to Bible class all their lives, and he says to them, I want to make a connection with you. You don't need your Bibles. Let me just use nature. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one Man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods of... That means when you're going to live and when you're not. And the boundaries of their dwelling place, where you're going to live and where you're not, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward Him. Can I tell you, I mean, it's just the absolute uniform teaching of Scripture. God made the world. It's by his hand, and everything that exists is only here because God made it out of nothing. Perhaps point number one, didn't need to really argue that one. We all knew that. But the parable also explains that into this world, God sends his kingdom of God people to grow his kingdom. This is the weird plan of God. You know how he's bringing the kingdom into the world? Through us. Now that's risky. When you put your plan together and you depend on human beings to get the job done, it's a risky proposition, isn't it? But that's how God chose it. He sowed the kingdom into the world through us. And it's through us that that kingdom grows. And the way that we live, the decisions that we make, how we talk, how we interact with people. You know Adam and Eve, God was going to save the whole planet, right? He just wanted everybody to be safe. So Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve couldn't be faithful very long. They were kicked out of the garden. That didn't work, so he wipes everything out and he starts over with Noah. 
That didn't last very long. That so here's what he decided to do with Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a nation of people. It's not a nation of color. It's not a nation of language. It's not a nation of blood. It's a nation of faith. Anyone who chooses, chooses to live by God's will and under his dominion can go into this kingdom. It's a, if you have the faith of Abraham, you're in the kingdom of Abraham, which is the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It's not boundaries. It's not about U.S. It's not about Ethiopia. It's not about Romania. It's, it's about, have you believed? Do you believe in who he is? That makes you the kingdom of God. And it's by us that God is making his presence known. This is the weirdest part of his plan, but that's the way the parable goes. But all of a sudden, the workers take notice of something. Okay, God made the world. Everything goes back to him. And God put his people into the world to reach the world. But why is there so much evil in it then? They look out there and they say, the stuff's growing and it's bad. Where did the bad come from? I love the question. It's an important question. This parable explains the presence of evil in a world created by God. What I love about this is the parable, if you recall, these people, when they're struggling with this, trying to figure out why evil is there, they, they go straight to God for an explanation. They come up to Jesus and they say, didn't you plant good stuff? Yes. Didn't you only make good stuff? Yes. Then where's the evil coming from? And they bring their protest. Listen to it as a voice of protest. Uh, they bring their protest straight to Jesus for an explanation. We want to know. You owe us an explanation for where this bad stuff came from. Can I tell you, when you are afflicted in some way by evil, whether it be an evil person or an evil thing or a bad event that disrupts your life, the most natural thing for a child of God to do is go into the presence of God and protest. He's not offended by that. You're not disturbing him by that. This parable says if you've got questions and you've got protests and you've got complaints and you've got issues about why evil is affecting your life, go straight in the presence of Jesus. That's the greatest thing you can do because you are saying to him, I believe you're sovereign. I believe you're over everything. So I want an explanation for this thing that doesn't seem to fit. His sovereignty demands. Why not take it to him? So be a person who... When frustration happens or confusion afflicts your life, go straight in the presence of Jesus, and he's not offended at all. There was a man once who visited in a mental hospital, and there was an, a children's ward of the mental hospital. It was crazy. It's third world stuff. But he says, I once visited a psychiatric hospital that was kind of a warehouse of human misery. Hundreds of children with severe disabilities were lying neglected on cots. There was deadly silence in the whole building. Not one of them was crying. And when they realized that nobody cares, nobody's going to answer, no one's going to hear, children just quit crying. It takes too much energy. We only cry when there's a hope that someone will hear us. What should you do when you're, when you're afflicted by something and you don't know what else to do? Cry to Him! It's the greatest sign that you believe that God is living and that he cares. Cry to him. He will change it or and or he will change you. Whatever it takes, you take it to him. The people I'm most concerned about are Christians who think, for whatever reason, he's not hearing and they don't pray anymore. 
In this parable, you take your complaint, you take this protest, you take this confusion, and you take it straight into his presence, and he answers it. And what does he say the answer is? An enemy has done this. There is another force involved in messing things up. And he snuck in here overnight. He planted evil in the earth right there among the righteous of God. He planted it right there and it grew up together. Now this doesn't take Jesus off the hook, does it? Here's the question. If he made everything and everything was good, how do you explain evil? This is a real problem, and, and the Bible doesn't explain this. You've got Genesis 1 and 2, and God created the world, and he stepped back and he said, Ooh, boy, that is what? Good, that's good, I like that, that's good. Okay, but what happens in Genesis 3? Where does the serpent come from? If God created everything and everything was good, how did bad get here? The Bible doesn't answer that. So I won't either. Jesus just says, there's an enemy here. And he's working at the same time. So the parable then explains, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? We are trying to live our lives faithfully, be the people that God called us to. We believe in who God is and we worship him and we, and we try to serve him. But we serve him even knowing full well that evil is out there to meet us as soon as we leave. In the parable, the idea is wheat grows up and there's a weed called Darnell. Darnell looks exactly like wheat. You can't tell the difference until the head comes out on it. Suddenly you realize that's not wheat at all. But they're just absolutely looking. What, what do we do about this? What do we do about it? Now, what they decide is they think, well, the most logical thing is to go out there and uproot this stuff. But it looks exactly alike. And the seeds are all intermingled. It's hard to tell where one ends and another begins. You can't do that, right? It's a logical thing. How many of, uh, if Gary Buck were up here and explaining this, he would take three hours to explain how he gardens. I'm not going to do that to you. But no one lets weeds and the crops grow up without weeding them or spraying them or something. Nobody does this. But that's what Jesus tells them to do. Let them grow up together. What in the world? There's some, mis there's some miscommunication somewhat about this. There's a, a few responses about having to wait until we separate them. First thing is we have to admit something about ourselves. That we all have wheat and we all have weed. Zzz. William McLean came up afterwards and he said, you might want to make that plural on that screen. Because he said, I, I'm an ASU professor and there are some who have weed in them. I said, okay. So that should say weeds. But the truth is, how many in here would admit that while you are the wheat of the kingdom of God, you've got some weed streaks in you? And if in an isolated moment of your life you act out of character with your wheatness, and God were to destroy every fiber of weed in the world, weeds in the world, he would take you out. If God instantly took all the evil out of the world when it appeared, none of us would be here. We'd all be eliminated. Because it's in us. 
So the weeds and the wheat have to grow together inevitably. But second, it doesn't mean that we don't practice discernment and we don't challenge evil when we see it. This is the most problematic uh, conclusion that people draw from it. Well, just let it go on. There's a guy, a, a guy who attacks a woman and rapes her or someone who sexually abuses children or whatever. Well, the wheat and the wheat all grow up together. You can't do anything about it. Wrong. That is a terrible application of this parable. There are structures God has put in us, put among us, government and law enforcement, that, that we go through those structures to take care of these issues that arise in our lives. We don't take it single-handedly, but we use the structures God provides. And there's a third thing, and this is the most important observation, it seems to me, from this. While God very much would be capable of eliminating all the weeds, because we know he eventually will, God can do it but he won't. He's not going to do it. And you're going to say, well, why not? What kind of God, sovereign over all things, Lord of heaven and earth, lets a baby drown? It's not a kind of God I want to serve. Is he really in charge of this whole thing? Good question, isn't it? What kind of a God allows the kind of abuse that goes on that every night they're calling for someone to have this, to, to, to offer foster care, to let children come down because they've been run out of their house, they have no place to stay. What kind of evil in this world can a God let go on and not do a thing about it? What kind of God is that? Not a kind of God a lot of people want to worship. How do you explain, I'm the kingdom of God and our God is sovereign over all and all this crud is happening in this world? You watch the evening news? Do you believe our God could wipe all that out? Of course he could. Why doesn't he? We get a glimpse of this with Jesus. I want you to look at Matthew. hope I can see that screen from here. Jesus said to him, to Peter, put your sword away. Put it back, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? We have a song called 10,000 Angels, right? From this passage. On this, he's here and they're about to take him away, put him on a cross. Do you not, Jesus says, do you not think that if I wanted out of this, I couldn't. Do you not think I could call thousands of angels and destroy everybody here? Of course he could. Why doesn't he? Because he says, how then would God's plan be fulfilled? You see, God can't eliminate evil the way we wish he would and still be faithful to his character. He can't do it. And by the way, it's a character we're thankful for. It's called grace. God is gracious. And aren't you grateful? Every day we get together and think about and praise God on Sundays. Thank you for your grace that saved me. But the same grace that saves you makes God become patient with evil and bear with it a long time to give everybody who's evil a chance to respond to. He cannot be gracious to you and not have mercy and patience toward them. You can't have it both ways. And there are a lot of people who celebrate the grace of God, but I resent the patience of God with evil. But if it weren't for that, you wouldn't have gotten grace yourself. You can't have it both ways. 
God must be consistent with his character, and to do so, he has to give you free will, but he long suffers, and he longs for everybody to respond so much. He loves that person who's a child molester as much as he loves you, and that makes me cringe, and that makes me go, you've got to be kidding. I'm in Arkansas. I pack. I carry. How can I sit by and let that happen? Listen, God loves them as much as he loves you, and he's got to be as gracious to them as he is to you, and if you resent that... You're trying not to let God be God except for you. And what kind of selfishness is that? That leads to the final explanation it offers, and it tells us this. It's not always going to be this way. The, the end of the explanation later on in the chapter sounds like this. Here's the end of the story. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a lot of people who do not have ears to hear this. There's many people in our world that we live in right now that will not hear this and will not stand for it, and they've eliminated hell. But you can do that all you want to. There is a hell. There must be a hell. If there is a gracious God who's pure and holy and righteous, there must be a place that he puts people who do not want his grace. There has to be a hell. Jesus is truth and God is pure and holy and he cannot overlook a single transgression. He cannot overlook a single slight sin, what we might call a slight sin. It's all an offense against his perfect, pure holiness. But how can a perfect, pure, holy God have anyone who can be in his kingdom and serve him because we all lack perfection? Well, that's where he came up with a plan. There's two payment plan options for how your sin gets atoned for. How he can still love you right? Still love you and be faithful to himself, but also faithful to you. Payment plan number one is all your sin is paid for by Jesus when you trust him and live for him. It's a trade-off. He says, I'll take your spot if you take mine. And we say, okay. And we bow to him. And the waters of baptism, we trade places. He becomes sinful like us. And we become righteous like him, and the rest of our lives and in eternity, God looks at us like we are his sons. Payment plan number one. Payment plan number two, if you just insist on it, you don't want God's interference in your life at all, and you just insist on it, you take your sins all on your account, and you approach God on judgment day, and God has to do something with you. He cannot dismiss any sin and let it into heaven. He cannot do it. We think, well, just slip it under the rug, and over time, what's it really matter? You ever think about that? If I'm walking in the concentration camps where the German people are putting my kids to, to death and slaughtering them, and I happen to survive it, I'm not going to get to this time and say, well, it's 50 years ago. That ain't no big deal. It is a big deal. He cannot let one sin go unatoned for. He doesn't sweep it under the rug like no big deal. Listen, folks, your sin is serious business, and it is eternally costly. And if you insist to approach God one of these days and say, well, I'm good enough, he'll just sweep this under a rug, i got news for you. He will send you straight to hell forever against him because that's what you want. You've made the choice. I will not let Jesus pay for my sin. I'll pay for it myself. And Jesus, God, over his son's dead body, says, okay then. 
I'll give you eternity without me. There is a hell, church. There is a hell. There must be one to serve a righteous and holy God. He cannot let a single sin go unpaid for. And the secret to us not being revenge-worthy people, I want you to look at this passage with me, this last verse, Romans chapter 12. You see, as you live as a kingdom citizen the best you can, trying to live faithfully in this world, evil is going to infringe upon your life. Evil will invade your life, and there will be evil people do bad things to you unfairly. And he says to us, we are to be forgiving You know, Christians are to be easy forgiving. That doesn't let those people off the hook. Those of you who think that forgiveness suddenly means you're letting them off the hook, you might be letting them off the hook, but they're not off the hook. He says you forgive them. And he says here, never avenge yourselves. What's the secret to being a child of God who never holds something against somebody and never takes vengeance? You know the only secret is the rest of this verse. The reason I can forgive and not take vengeance is only because I know God will. If I didn't think God would, I would be bitter. But because I know He will, I can let Him and not affect me. Guys, there's a lot of sin going on in the world and people look at it so minimally anymore. It's no big deal anymore to a lot of people. But I'm going to tell you, they're going to end up in hell if Jesus doesn't absorb the penalty for their sin. You will end up in hell if Jesus doesn't rescue you because you ask Him to. And I don't want to serve a God who turns his face and says, evil's no big deal. We'll just let it be universalism. God can't do that. And this parable says he won't. And this world won't always be the way it is now. There's an end day coming, and church, we're one day closer to it today than we've ever been in the history of the world. We're one day closer to this all being done. This parable says to us, the kingdom of God is the place to live because you have the assurance of salvation and a right standing with God. But even so, even as you live out the kingdom, you are for a time going to have to live alongside the very real presence of the influence of evil. You'll be impacted by it, you'll be touched by it, you'll be invaded by it. Life will not be fair, it will not be just. This is the consequence of living with a patient God who allows everyone to have an opportunity to respond to his grace. It can't be otherwise, but trust God when he says this. It won't always be this way. Until then, when it invades your life, protest to God. Take your grievings and your heartbreak and your sorrow and that bitter vengeance in your heart and you take it to God and give it to him and trust that he's going to take this and he's going to make this right. Realize the enemy is opposing you. Stay the course. You will not be sorry. If you're in this assembly today and you're in the kingdom of God, live by the will of God. 
Live your life truly. If you are, are in here and you're in the kingdom of God, but you've got disoriented from one way or another, something has obstructed you, something has caused you to be distracted from living the kingdom life, get back in it. Repent of whatever it takes and get back into the kingdom full force, bringing about good in the world. And if you're not in the kingdom of heaven, you need to come this morning and ask Jesus to trade places with you because the place you're in will lead to only one place, eternal fires of hell, where you'll exist forever, separate from God, just like you are right now. Only worse. I hate that message. Except that I love that message because it's the truth. And if you have ears to hear, you've heard. If you don't have ears to hear, it's still true. And you need to respond now as we stand and sing to encourage you.